Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and I am joined today, as every week, by Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Uh, For technical reasons, we are recording this uh, podcast a little bit earlier than we normally do on a Friday. So the uh, market data we're going to give you is as of Friday morning rather than uh, the close on Friday. But I hope that's uh, not going to change things materially unless we have a really black Friday. So, uh, Simon, let's kick off and tell us what has been happening in the first four days of this week, at least. Well, yes, the first four days of the week, uh, the UK market was down about 1.6%. The investment company sector, not quite as bad as that, but still in negative territory, about 0.7% down. Uh, As you mentioned, we're recording this early Friday morning and the market started on a more positive note, up about half a percent. But uh, it looks as if it will finish in negative territory for the week. In terms of the investment company sector, uh, its average discount has moved around a little bit, but certainly in the first four days of the week, it widened from 2.7% to 2.9%. But clearly a lot of attention this week uh, from the market in terms of earnings. I think we can all uh, understand the reasons why we might see a strong rebound in revenues this year. Um, But there's now the kind of dawning realisation that actually costs are going to be up quite significantly as well. So what does that mean to the bottom line? Also, uh, again, a lot of discussion uh, across market commentary about the impact of the Delta variant um, and particularly what that means to the reopening trade. So there's a lot of, I think, things to worry about, frankly, across the marketplace. Uh, Volumes are light, as we've mentioned in recent weeks. Caution levels seem to be increased. Uh, There were some kind of key data points out this week uh, in terms of Chinese growth, which was a little bit behind expectation, uh, and also uh, US inflation data as well. So the market has, as always, uh, a considerable amount to digest. Indeed. And as we've commented before, the the first six months of this year have been, well, remarkably smooth, really, by normal equity market standards. We haven't really had a significant sell-off at any point. It's all been the news about the vaccine, the reopening trade, and so on. And a lot of discussion, as we know, about interest rates. So it wouldn't be surprising to see you had a little bit of a little bit of a wobble at some point. But uh, let's move on and talk about what's been happening in corporate activity in the investment trust sector. And uh, we might as well start with Gabelli Value Plus Plus. We said that's uh, ticker GVP. We said at one point that we thought this uh, saga would never end, where we have the uh, the board and the manager being in some uh, disagreement, shall we say? But uh, are we actually getting near the end of this one now, Simon? Well, I think we are. I think the uh, the end is nigh uh, for Get Belly Value Plus Plus. So what happened this week is actually on the 12th of July, it was a general meeting at which 96% of the votes cast were voted against the continuation of the fund. And again, 99% of the votes cast thereafter voting in favour of placing the fund into a member's voluntary liquidation. Therefore, the trading has been suspended in this company. The listing of the shares has been cancelled. Uh, in this case, now of uh, shareholders waiting to get their money back. Slightly interesting one, though, because invariably when you see investment companies for one reason or another vote for a uh, managed wind down or a member's uh, voluntary liquidation, to be more precise, the discount invariably tightens into quite a tight level. That didn't happen in the case of Gabelli Value Plus Plus. I think I had the last recorded share price about 158p, and that compares with a last published NAV of nearer to 173p, so on some kind of discount. But possibly that's a reflection of the fact that it's quite a large portfolio, over 100 
position, certainly at the end of March when they last fully disclosed it. Uh, and even though there was some cash on the balance sheet, there were some uh, liabilities as well. So back in July last year, the board issued a notice to its uh, manager, Gabelli Funds, but it was a 24-month notice period. So I think the estimate is that uh, Gabelli will walk away uh, with a cheque of £1.7 million from that. So there are some liabilities there. But um, I think the guidance on this one in terms of when do shareholders get their money back, well, there'll be initial distribution uh, within a month. But thereafter, it may take some time just to uh, liquidate that portfolio. Right. So uh, I assume what this means, obviously, there was the, um, the management company did have a significant stake in this one. And presumably, therefore, they, they either didn't vote. Had they agreed not to vote in this one? I can't remember. Or they, uh, or they actually voted for it uh, positively themselves. Can we tell that from the, from the numbers? I think we can guess from the numbers. And to be fair, they also disclosed it. So the, the management company, you're absolutely right, uh, had a significant stake in the company and they agreed not to vote it at this particular general meeting in contrast to what we saw last year uh, when they did vote, uh, but the fund still failed its continuation vote. Right. So it's been a, a brief life. I mean, this trust was launched in uh, 2017. Uh, and, well, we don't know what the final verdict is going to be on how, how shareholders have done, but um, how does that return look over that whole period of its, uh, of its life? Yeah, I, again, I haven't got the numbers directly in front of me at the moment, but certainly when I last looked at them relatively recently, although they were up in positive territory, they were behind certainly the S&P 500, which is the kind of the normal benchmark that you'd look at for US equities. Yeah, so we had to say farewell to them. Also, some issues, as we know, we've talked a lot about uh, third point investors uh, and what's been going on there, where the, uh, the board has been uh, confronted with a demand from uh, AVI Global, uh, acting on behalf of some other investors as well, they want to change some things in the attempt to get the discount down on this one. What's been the development there this week? So basically, the board of third point investors have turned around this week and they've rejected the requisition for an extraordinary general meeting from the four shareholders, one of which is asset value investors. Uh, and that's on the basis of advice that it's received that the resolution proposed would fall under the legal definition of ineffective, which uh, is an interesting one. I haven't come across that one before, but that is their legal advice. So they basically uh, can ignore this requisition. And the board also noted that it had actually previously considered measures similar to the proposals outlined by AVI and the other three investors. But the board has a preference for the measures currently in place. Um, and it also noted that the, uh, the fund's performance had actually picked up being quite strong and the discount had also tightened in to an extent. So basically, this has been ruled out on a kind of technicality, essentially, I think. Obviously, there's uh, the lawyers on one side have a different view about what uh, the other side have been saying. So where do you think that sort of leaves us then uh, after that uh, announcement by the board? Yeah, it's a good question. And it kind of looks like a little bit of a standoff, to be perfectly honest. I mean, as noted, the discount has narrowed in, but it still remains at a 13% level. Uh, that compares with uh, an average over the previous 12 months of 19%, uh, but obviously still quite wider than the, the sector average discount, as we mentioned at the start of this podcast. So th there's a standoff. I mean, uh, clearly there, there is a significant element, including asset value investors, who are not happy with the direction of the company, but um, arguably it doesn't seem quite enough to really force real change. So uh, one suspects we will be discussing this one again in the weeks and months ahead, but it's not entirely clear where AVI go with this now. Yes, I mean, a lot of it is to do with the share structure, isn't it, not of, the, of this trust and the fact that asset value investors and, and other shareholders don't have, as it were, full bang for their 
for their number of uh, shares they own. There's sort of different uh, voting restrictions on some of the other shares, including those held by the by the management, I think. But of course, the other irony of this one is that is that third point investors have actually done extraordinarily well over the last period. I mean, in terms of both in share price, obviously the discount coming in, but also um, in terms of NAV performance. So it's uh, slightly unusual to have a, a trust which is performing that well, uh, seemingly engaged in a, in a, in a bitter battle with uh, one of its shareholders. Uh, no, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, over the last year, over the last 12 months, the NAV is up 50%. In share price terms, that's even better, up 81%. Um, so any shareholders in third-point investors, one would assume would be relatively happy uh, with that as a, as a return. I mean, over the longer term, there have been issues from time to time with this one. But effectively, that short-term performance has been strong. Yes, well, we'll see. As I said, that's a, that saga may take over from uh, Gabelli Value Plus Plus as a long-running one to keep us occupied at least. Let's move on then and talk about what's happening with BH Global, another hedge fund that's been involved in uh, certain corporate governance issues. And uh, we know that there's going to be a merger with BH Macro. Have we had any more details on that? We have indeed, yes. Um, so basically, BH Global has come out this week. And they've given details of what shareholders wish with regard to either cash or shares in BH Macro. So basically, 2.9 million sterling shares and 1.2 million US dollar shares have elected for cash. Uh, and then the balance have gone for the, the rollover option. So again, I think we've, we've discussed this one in the past. What would be the, the level of rollover and what would be the size of the merged company? So BH Global, BH Macro, in terms of the BH Macro being the ongoing vehicle. And effectively, um, I think this seems to be a relatively good result. So at the moment, the two combined investment companies have assets uh, not too far off a billion pounds, actually, probably about 990 million to be more precise. Um, Clearly, some of that will be returned through uh, this cash option on BH Global and also the tender offer of BH Macro. But my estimates on on the back of an envelope still gives the combined ongoing company assets of about 870 million pounds, uh, if not a little bit more. So I, I would suggest that that's still a pretty decent size vehicle going forward uh, and uh, certainly makes sense. It's certainly not something optimal uh, by the standards of the wider sector. Indeed. And uh, as we pointed out before, obviously, this all came about because of the decision by the management company, Revan Howard, to uh, demand, I think it's fair to say, put it that way, demand higher fees or to go back to the fees they recently had of 2%, roughly speaking, and a bit more. And um, they've succeeded in that. Uh, But meanwhile, what's happened to the share price? I mean, they did go out to a bit of a discount when this was announced initially. Obviously, a number of different share classes here, the the dollar and the sterling one. But what's the overall picture on uh, on the discount front? Yeah, no, again, it's, it's a good point. So you're right. I mean, we did see both these companies actually trade out on a, on a premium rating uh, last year on BH Macro, a particularly strong rating. On the numbers I have as at the close of Thursday, uh, BH Macro, the sterling share class, was on about a 1% discount. And that compares with an average 3% premium over the previous 12 months. So you could say that the, the, the rating has slipped, and that is certainly true looking at these numbers. But again, a 1% discount is relatively modest and one suspects after the merger is complete, which won't be to the end of August by the time it's all done and dusted, then we'll have a better idea of what the ongoing demand for this investment company is. People own these uh, trusts typically as a kind of uh, defensive ballast. They proved their worth last year during the big sell-off. But so presumably over the first six months of this year, they probably haven't uh, delivered much in the way of performance. Would that be right? Yeah, no, spot on. So um, they have had what can be termed a quiet period. So the numbers I have in front of me, BH Macro's 
NADs flat over the last six months, and BH Global a very modest, uh, about a 1% decline or so. So yes, a quieter period for performance. Okay, so now let's talk about RTW Venture Fund, RTW, which is not a hedge fund, but it's a uh, trusted invest in uh, biotech and early stage uh, companies in that uh, space. What have they had to say? Yeah, so they had an interesting development this week or an interesting announcement. Um, I mean, they have been quite active in terms of their uh, investments and, and certainly they appear to have had a number of successes in their relatively short life uh, as a listed company uh, in the UK. But they announced this week that they intended to apply for a transfer from the specialist fund segment to the premium segment of the London Stock Exchange. Now, that's uh, subject to shareholder approval and there'll be an EGM on the 30th of July but it's a significant development, I would suggest. I mean, for those people unaware, the specialist fund segment has been running now for a number of years. There are about 58 investment companies on it at the moment, or certainly there were at the end of June. And by definition, they tend to be the more specialist investment companies out there. And there's invariably reasons why they've ended up on the specialist fund segment as opposed to the premium segment of the London Stock Exchange. And it might be that their initial portfolio is quite concentrated or their shareholder list is uh, equally concentrated. And what's the advantage of being on the premium segment? Well, it means you could be considered for inclusion in things like the, the, the FTSE All Share, for instance. You could become on one of the main indices. It means it becomes easier for retail investors to invest in these companies. So um, there are a number of companies over their life that may have started off on the specialist fund segment and then migrated to the premium segment as and when they're kind of up and running. And RTW Venture looks to be one of those. And the size of RTW Venture Fund at this point, given its success, is, is roughly what? I mean, would it be a candidate to include in one of the indices after a period of time? Yes, is the short answer to that. So I've got it on a market cap of about £310 million at the moment. That is in sterling. And that would put it within uh, scope of um, including in the FTSE all share. It would be a constituent of the FTSE small cap, given that kind of size. I mean, that would be dependent on its liquidity as well. So it's not just a slam dunk in terms of size, but uh, assuming that it has traded sufficiently, then it would be a, a candidate. And presumably that's one of the ideas. Presumably there will be more liquidity. And uh, presumably if it does get into the index, then obviously index funds can buy it as well. So that all seems quite positive. And just remind us, this trust has only been on the market for a, a short time. But uh, how well has it done over that period? Yes, yeah, so since its launch towards the end of 2019, it's generated a, a total return in sterling terms of about 84% in US dollar terms. Um, it probably nearer to 100%, to be honest. So it's got off to a good start, essentially, and uh, uh, and has been attracting a bit of a following. I know we've uh, I talked to one of the, the directors the, the other day. Okay, well, that's uh, going well for them. Interesting vehicle. Let's move on and talk about uh, fundraising. The fundraising goes on, uh, as uh, we've been saying every week, more or less, since the start of the year. The market conditions have been favourable. Got to grab the money while you can, I guess. Uh, Let's talk about um, BBGI Global Infrastructure. BBGI. Yes, so BBGI Global Infrastructure announced that they'd raised £75 million. That was in an oversubscribed placing uh, initially, I think they were looking for about £50 million, but as a result of, uh, as they put it, significant investor demand and the fact that uh, in existing drawings under their revolving credit facility meant that uh, they could increase that size of that issue. So those shares will begin trading on Monday. Uh, that issue was at 166p per share. 
And they last came to the market in November last year, at which stage they raised £55 million at 169 p per share. Okay, and they're still trading on a big premium, presumably. So it'll be interesting to see that uh, there obviously has been demand out there. What's the price quoted in the market at the moment, though, before these new shares obviously start trading? Yeah, sure. So um, I had the price at the close on Thursday, just short of 170p. Right. So uh, slightly above the issue price. Let's move on and talk about Gresham House Energy Storage. It has the very appropriate uh, ticker GRID, G-R-I-D, and they've uh, been raising money as well. They have, and it was another uh, oversubscribed issue. They raised gross proceeds of £100 million, and that was via the issue of 89.3 million ordinary shares at 112 P. So those proceeds will be used to finance the construction of two remaining battery energy storage system projects uh, from their current pipeline, and that will total 150 megawatts, uh, and actually uh, will include 90 megawatts from the subsequent pipeline. So again, they're building out their portfolio. Uh, and these new shares began trading on Wednesday this week. Uh, and uh, again, you know, this, this is a, a story or an asset class that seems to be uh, gaining a little bit of momentum. They last raised money back in, again, November last year. Uh, they raised £120 million at that stage, and that was at a price of 105p. So there's been some significant improvements since then, up to 112p, the issue price. And uh, will they go back to trading at a premium after that, do you think? Yeah, no. So again, the closing price uh, on Thursday, at least, was 118p, so north of their, their recent placing price. Very nice for them. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, one that's obviously attracted quite a lot of attention, just on, if nothing else, on novelty grounds, uh, and that is Seraphim Space Investment Trust, SSIT. Uh, how can you avoid knowing that Richard Branson has been into space and come back with uh, to mix reviews, I suppose? But anyway, here, <laughs> what's happened with this particular IPO? The first time we've had a a space-related uh, IPO in the investment trust world. I'm sure that's true. How did they get on? They got on well, actually. They raised £178 million uh, through their IPO, so a successful IPO. That included £28 million via direct subscriptions uh, in connection with the acquisition of their initial portfolio. So effectively, they raised £150 million of, of new money. So that was oversubscribed, in fact, scaled back, the shares began trading on Wednesday this week. And it's uh, funny you should mention Richard Branson because according to media reports, he's actually taken a stake in this one, as has Airbus as well. So it's clearly attracted interest from a wide uh, range of investors. The fund will be invested in a diversified international portfolio of early and growth stage space tech businesses. And in fact, they're, they're going to acquire uh, stakes in four space tech businesses for an estimated uh, £70 million by the end of this year uh, upon completion of termination. So it's like a seed portfolio, and they gave details of this in their prospectus. So that takes the seed assets up to £100 million and implies total gross proceeds in the initial issue and acquisition of retained assets to around £250 million. So, so far, so good. And that represents the seventh IPO in the sector so far this year. Right, 7th IPO, and uh, the shares have started trading? They have indeed, and are closed on Thursday up 104 spot 25p, so I'm sure Mr. Branson will be delighted. Indeed. Well, it's an interesting development, that, because obviously, as we, I think we mentioned when it was first announced, this is essentially a venture capital uh, trust. It's very early stage businesses. A lot of them haven't made uh, any profit or even had any revenues in one or two cases, but it's uh, obviously something that's caught the imagination 
a lot of high-profile names. Obviously, not just Richard Branson, but uh, Elon Musk is involved in the in the space race. I suppose you could call it. Uh, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this one goes. Whether it has uh, real organic uh, growth there, it'll be very interesting to follow it. It's uh, certainly a, a novelty for the sector. Let's uh, move on and talk about Urban Logistics REIT. This is SHED, another appropriate ticker, S-H-E-D. Uh, and they've also raised some money. They have. And yet again, it's an oversubscribed, a materially oversubscribed issue. Uh, they raised gross proceeds of £108 million. Pounds, uh, and that's replacing and also a primary bid offer. So a scaling back exercise uh, was carried out. Uh, and those shares in the placing were, were placed out at 155p per share. And uh, there was also 4 million shares issued through primary bid as well. So uh, that was subject to uh, shareholder approval, which uh, unsurprisingly duly came through. And those new shares uh, began trading on Tuesday. And how did they do when they reached the market? Uh, they did quite well, actually. So as I mentioned, 155p per share, the placing price, and they closed on Thursday, 165.75p. Right. So at the moment, there seems to be uh, no limit to the appetite uh, demand for trusts that come to you know raise money in the right kind of sector. Obviously, energy storage is one of them, infrastructure is another, and these uh, warehouses and logistics uh, trusts are also doing well. Uh, but overall, obviously, these trusts are all trading uh, at premiums. Do you have any indication from talking to people, you know, in your professional duties, Simon, whether there's uh, any sign of this uh, demand evaporating yet? Well, the numbers suggest that the, the demand still remains relatively healthy, though, interestingly enough, when you do talk to people about the amount of new issues um, or additional placings, fundraisings that they're seen at the moment, there does seem to be a little bit of fatigue, actually. Clearly, it has been a, a strong period. There have been a, notable, a few notable exceptions that haven't got across the line, and we've discussed those in recent weeks. But essentially, there has been a real wave of, of paper hitting uh, investors uh, in recent months. And as I say, there, there does seem to be some fatigue. One suspects that certainly... Uh, those people responsible for raising money are trying to get this all done and dusted before we do hit the dog days of summer. August uh, historically has been a pretty poor time to raise money for obvious reasons. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how things go really from September onwards. I suspect the pipeline will be quite sizable uh, for people trying to raise money and indeed launch new funds in the last three or four months of the year. And it'd be really interesting to see what the demand will be at that stage. Yes, and whether we can perhaps get to a record year, who knows, for issuance and possibly also IPOs. It'd be interesting to see, as you say. Well, we haven't quite finished on fundraising because there is news from the music royalty sector yet again. But this time it's Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, RHM, not our friends at Hypnosis. They've also raised some money. That's right. They announced that they've raised gross proceeds of 86.5 million US dollars. Uh, and that was via a C share issue with those shares issued at a dollar per share. So um, as they noted, the proceeds significantly exceeded the $50 million minimum target, uh, and the proceeds will be used to acquire the near-term pipeline of copyrights in line with the investment policy, uh, and due diligence is well advanced in respect of those names. And those uh, C shares will begin trading on the 20th of July, so Tuesday next week. So an interesting one, I mean, you mentioned hypnosis there. And again, in recent weeks, we, we talked about their oversubscribed placing, which raised £156 million. I think that was in Sterling. So Roundhill, obviously, a little bit behind what hypnosis achieved. 
And also with Roundhill, they're looking to get that money to work within a three-month period. Uh, as I said, they have a near-term pipeline in hand. But they were trying to raise, or certainly the pipeline was worth, they had disclosed previously, $120 million US dollars. So one wonders whether they'd be just a little bit disappointed with that result. Uh, and that pipeline is a, a range of music dating back to the 60s, the 70s and the 80s that they describe as, uh, as low risk. Yes, but uh, so unlike uh, hypnosis, they haven't said they're going to pause after this latest fundraising. So they, they could come back and try and uh, get the balance of the sum you mentioned. Uh, I dare say they might try that if uh, circumstances uh, allow it. So let's move on. We can move on to some results now. And uh, let's kick off with uh, Independent Investment Trust, IIT, which is uh, managed by a gentleman called Max Ward, who used to be the manager of Scottish Mortgage before James Anderson took over. How has Independent Investment Trust been performing? So Independent Investment Trust announced its interim results for the six months to the end of May. Uh, in which time they outperformed their NAV total return was up 16.8%. And that compared with a rise of 15.2% for the FTSE All Share and 9.8% for the FTSE World Index. In share price terms, not quite as good actually. Share price return was up 12.8% as their discount widened to 11%. And that came out from about nearer to 8%. And in fact, uh, they did buy back some shares in the period of over 900,000 shares were bought back. But there's always an interesting commentary uh, from Max uh, and indeed from the chairman as well. Um, talked about some of the IPOs they backed during the period, £27 million in total investing in companies such as Bytes Technology, Moonpig and Tiny Build. And, and certainly if you look at the portfolio, um, there's uh, numerous themes in there. So, so Max is undoubtedly a growth investor, perhaps unsurprisingly given his Scottish mortgage investment trust roots. Um, but technology is a key theme key holdings such as Seam Machines, Herald Investment Trust and Gamma Communications, uh, but it's also quite a significant weighting to house builders and business services as well. Yes, indeed. Okay, so let's move on and talk about an overseas trust now. This is Aberdeen New Dawn, ABD. What have they had to say? So they announced their annual results for the year to the 30th of April, in which time they uh, outperformed again. The NEV total return was up 43.4%. That compared with a return of 35.7% for their benchmark. In share price terms, it was even stronger, up 48.3%. Basically, the discount narrowed from 13% to nearer to 10%. So again, what worked for them? Well, they had some good stock selection amongst Chinese uh, companies. Uh, Tencent, which is a well-known company, Wuxi Biologics worked for them. Alibaba, they didn't hold that particular company for much of the period, but they did add it later on. So basically, China was a good hunting ground for them, as was South Korea and Taiwan. So kind of key holdings there, Samsung Electronics and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. But James Thom and Gabriel Sachs, the investment managers there, give a good commentary on how they see Asian equities at the moment and describe themselves as cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic, yes, that's a phrase I've heard before, I have to say. Um, tends to be quite common in management uh, <laughs> statements. Cautiously optimistic, always a good thing to be that. And uh, how, just remind us about Aberdeen New Dawn. Which sector does it sit in and uh, what sort of uh, peer group is it uh, competing against? Yeah, so it sits in the Asian sector, so Asian equities. So it will sit alongside actually one of its stablemates, uh, Asia Dragon. Also, other funds in there. Um, there's a couple of Schroeder funds. Schroeder Asian Total Return and Schroeder Asia Pacific 
as well as Bailey Gifford's Pacific Horizon and Pacific Assets as well. So Asia Pacific X Japan is its peer group. This Aberdeen New Dawn is uh, differentiated from its peers by its ability to invest in Australia. Most of them uh, exclude Australia from their investable universe, but Aberdeen New Dawn includes it. The lucky country, uh, Australia, often referred to, and haven't had a recession there for many years, I believe. That's uh, one of the curious factors about Australia. But how does its uh, performance compare and its rating compare to those that peer group? So over the last five years in NAV total return terms, uh, it's up 94%, uh, and that represents an outperformance of of the benchmark. And certainly uh, it's ahead of a number of its peers, including uh, Asia Dragon and Pacific Assets. However, uh, it's lagging behind the two Schroeder funds, who uh, Schroeder Asian total returns up 114% in NAV terms, uh, Schroeder Asia Pacific up 106%. But uh, everyone is left uh, in the wake of the Bailey Gifford Fund, Pacific Horizon, that's up 252% over five years in NAV terms. That is certainly an extraordinary performance indeed. So let's move on and talk about some specialist trust results now. And uh, let's go to Gore Street Energy Storage, GSF. Uh, they've had some results. And of course, they are competing with uh, the Gresham House Energy Storage Trust that we uh, heard about earlier in the fundraising section. That's correct. And they announced annual results to the 31st of March, in which time they saw their NAV increase by 6.7%, in addition to which they paid dividends totaling 7p, and that was in line with the target. So therefore, they had an NAV total return of 14.1%, uh, which represents a good return for this asset class. Um, but they also saw a significant increase in the size of the fund, obviously, uh, and that was partially as a result of fundraising. So the portfolio increased from 189 megawatts to 520 megawatts after the period end of which 210 megawatts are operational. And apparently, the fund is now the largest operator of energy storage on the Irish grid, with an estimated 66% market share, and it holds around about 10% of the one gigawatt install capacity of the grid in Great Britain. So there was some commentary that uh, it only selected the most attractive assets at prices that are considerably more attractive than those gathered by its major competitors, and you'd certainly hope that would be the case. But in terms of operational assets, they continue to perform within the manager's expectations. But um, there's still a big pipeline out there. They mentioned a pipeline of 880 million uh, megawatts with 300 megawatts under exclusivity, and that's located in um, Great Britain, Ireland, continental Europe, and the US. So uh, expect to see more activity with regards to this one. Yes, and in terms of performance, obviously these things sell primarily on a yield basis. Uh, How do the yields of these two energy storage trusts uh, compare? Yeah, so I've got the yield at the moment for Gore Street at 6.2%, Gresham House not too far behind it, actually about 5.9%. But it's worth just highlighting one other aspect. When Gore Street Energy came to the market, which wasn't that long ago, May 2018, so just over three years ago, they raised £31 million. They're now uh, standing with a market cap 10 times that at £311 million. So they've clearly raised additional money during that period. But it just shows that if you can get these investment companies up and running uh, and you can deliver on your your promise, you can see quite significant growth. Yes, indeed, you can. So let's move on and talk about Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust. This is another relatively newcomer to the sector, uh, to the investment trust world. What have they had to say? 
Yes, I think it's worth highlighting that this is not a set of results, but they gave a bit more color in terms of their investment rollout program. So just recently, they've made a new follow-on commitment of £5 million into SASH, S-A-S-H, which aims to improve lives of vulnerable individuals by increasing their access to safe housing. So they've already made a commitment of £5 million to this organization. Um, but basically, the new commitment will enable Simon Community Scotland, which is a recent SASH investment, to expand its services into Edinburgh and buy 15 properties that provide permanent homes for people facing homelessness. So it's, it's obviously, it's always very interesting to get the colour from what's going on at the portfolio level. But I think possibly more importantly, in terms of the overall portfolio, it's now 97% committed. Uh, and that includes 66% of net IPO proceeds actually invested and the managers expect the fund to be fully committed suddenly by the end of July. And that's ahead of its anticipated 12-month time frame. Because if, as you may remember, this one came to the market in December last year. So it's still early days indeed. But uh, good to see the money that was raised being uh, put to use, uh, as you say. Let's move on and talk about uh, PRS REIT, PRSR, a trust which I've certainly been following for a while. They've had an update. And what have they been telling their shareholders. So this was an update for the three months to the end of June, which actually represents the fourth quarter of their financial year. But yes, um, again, lots of activity at the portfolio level. So they've added nearly 400 new rental homes to the portfolio, and that takes the total housing delivery for the year ended 30th of June to just over 1,900 new homes. Um, They've got an an additional just over 1,000 homes contracted at varying stages of construction. So basically, all this activity increases the size of the portfolio as at the end of June to just short of 4,000 completed homes. uh, And they have an estimated rental value of about £37.5 million. uh, And that compares to something nearer to about £19 million uh, a year earlier. So there are over three quarters of the way towards their initial target of 5,200 homes. Uh, and that would have an estimated rental value of about £50 million. So they are quite a long way down the track to getting to where they want to get to in terms of new homes and how much rent can be generated. So that all seems pretty positive. Demand remains strong for the homes. The rent collected in the period uh, equated to about 98.4%. So they're doing quite well on the rental collection as well. And the board is continuing to target a minimum 4p total dividend for the financial year ended 30th of June 2021. Yeah, so this is an interesting story because uh, this trust was trading at quite a big discount last year. It obviously its activities were delayed by the pandemic and the effect on the construction industry, though not uh, that materially as we've now seen. And it has uh, some institutional support. This this trust, and obviously I know the management team is hoping to attract more institutional interest when it gets to its size and has proved its concept, if you like, and completed its five thousand homes. So it's actually the share price has done uh, pretty well because it's gone from a discount to a premium in a pretty short order. No, that's right. So I've got it at the moment on about a nine percent premium to its NAV. And you're right, that that compares, let me just see, over the previous 12 months, it's probably averaged about a 10% discount, and it's been out as wide as a 25% discount. So it's come back a long way. Yeah, turned out to be a good opportunity for some last year. Let's move on and talk about another property trust. This is not quite the same uh, business, though. Uh, Regional REIT, RGL. Uh, What have they had to say? So they provided an update for the uh, second quarter of 2021, that three-month period to the end of June. Uh, Basically, they collected uh, just short of 95% of the rent due during that time. 
And uh, I think they uh, stand reasonably confident that they can increase that number. For 2021 year to date, the total rent collection stands at just short of 96%. And in terms of where they are, they remain in discussions, as they put it, with tenants regarding the remainder of outstanding rent. And they expect to collect the vast majority in due course. And how are the shares of that particular trust been performing? We know that the commercial property sector has, uh, well, it's been uh, recovering this year. It's been quite uh, some quite sharp share price movements in the sector, uh, both the specialist uh, property trust, but also the general commercial property trust. Where does regional REIT sit in that uh, particular context and universe? Yeah, so it's seen um, a significant recovery in its rating. It's probably trading on around about a 10% discount or so now. That compares with an average of 21% over the previous 12 months. And again, in that time, it was out at one stage on a discount as wide as 41%. So it's come back a long way, though, just to put some context, that's probably about the average for its uh, particular peer group, about 10% or so. And what is the yield on that one? That's always been one of the attractions of that particular Trust, what's the, what's the yield on regional REIT? No, you're right. The yield is higher than what you'd expect to see across its peer group. So it's probably about 7% or so at the moment. And that compares with an average of 4.7% for its immediate peers. And finally, in terms of updates, we have to mention, we've mentioned Roundhill Music World Fund, but we, we haven't been totally silent on the subject of hypnosis. S-O-N-G is the ticker, as your most listeners will know by now. But they've noticed something interesting, and perhaps you can explain what, uh, what they had to say this week and, and what perhaps the significance of it is. Yeah, well, a very interesting development, really. So this week saw the publication of the House of Commons Digital Culture, Media and Sport Select committees reporting to the economics of music streaming. And uh, this got quite a lot of media interest, actually, um, and quite critical of the kind of pricing structure at the moment that leaves some artists, frankly, uh, quite out of pocket, despite considerable interest in their output. Now, Hypnosis Songs, and in particular, the founder, Merck Curiadas, has picked up on this. He highlighted that the report recommends a full reset of streaming in law. Uh, and refers the case to the Competitions and Markets Authority to undertake a full market study. So this does have implications for, you know, just hypnosis, but the whole kind of music industry. And uh, it's difficult to know if it were to proceed what those implications would be. But clearly the economics of the music business has have, uh, been turned upside down in recent decades. And one can make the argument that people like Roundhill and hypnosis have been beneficiaries of the, the move to streaming. Um, but equally, I think there is this growing feeling that the actual artists involved have been disadvantaged, or many of them have been disadvantaged by what's um, happened as a result. So again, very interesting to watch this one and, the, and work out the implications for the asset class. Yes, and I recall that one of the selling points that both the music uh, funds make is that they are actually also hoping to get better deals and uh, better revenues for the artists they represent or the, whose catalogues they own. And so I guess they have a sort of dual interest in what's happening in streaming. On the one hand, if streaming is growing the market overall, if it is, then uh, that's good for everybody. But equally, if they can get a bigger share of the stream and, and therefore the likes of Spotify and Apple Music and, and the rest uh, have to take a little bit less, that will also uh, benefit them over time. And that clearly is, I think, why he presumably why he's uh, bringing it to our attention, shall we say. No, I think that's right. And I think one of the kind of key messages that he has always conveyed in terms of his starting point is that he's very much would see himself on the side of the artists 
he talks about um, you know, the family of artists. He often talks about how he's delighted to have various artists on board when he buys their catalogues. So I think he would see himself on the side of the, of the music artists. So uh, again, uh, interesting to see how this benefits the fund or um, maybe causes some issues. Indeed. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. There's been a little less uh, news than normal. But uh, as you say, it's been a sort of slight dog day feel about the market, apart from the fundraising, which is still going pretty strongly, as we've said. So over the summer, over the next few weeks, uh, I guess it'll be a bit more of the same. No, I think you're right. (laughs) I think you're right. As you often uh, have heard, been heard to say, there's always some activity going on in the investment company sector despite uh, low trading volumes and, uh, you know, quiet period for results, but always something to discuss. Indeed there is. And I don't think we've had a week yet when we haven't had uh, at least, you know, 15 items or so, or a dozen, 15 items to talk about. And I dare say that won't be changing over the course of the next few weeks. So do please keep listening from wherever you are. Just a technical point about this week's podcast, it may sound a little bit tinnier than usual. That's for technical reasons, which is not unconnected to the reason that we are producing this a little bit earlier than than normal but i hope you'll uh, bear with us and we look forward to uh, sharing our thoughts and analysis from simon uh, next week this has been a money makers investment trust podcast these podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels you can sign up on the money makers website www.money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.